Amen. Well, you may be seated. Good morning, church. My name is Alex. I serve as one of the pastors here at City Light South. It is so good to be with you to celebrate God's grace over the last year, to hear stories of him redeeming lives and bringing people to new life. I, I'm so excited for this morning. I, I literally all night last night was kind of just like jittery as I was putting some final touches to the sermon and just praying for the people this morning who were going to see baptized and hear some testimony. So I, I'm super excited that we get to just worship King Jesus today and celebrate his grace that's just poured on over us over and over again. Uh, friends, if you're new to South, if you've never been here, we would love to connect with you. If you're interested in questions, there's connection cards in the back. You can fill those out, put those in the giving box on your way out. Uh, but uh, as we get rolling, I just want to uh, preface some things that as a church, we've been walking through the book of Acts for the last several months. And so that's why we're in Acts chapter 15. Uh, but before we dive into the passage, I want to kind of get a survey of the room to uh, see how, how many of you guys are kind of a little bit more weird than I am. Uh, but the first question is, how many of you eat your pizza alone or you put pineapples on top of it? Raise your hand if you're a pineapple person. Okay, there's something seriously wrong with y'all. <laughs> okay, let's do it with pizza again. Um, how many of you, pizza alone or raise your hand if you've got to have ranch with it? Like you're, you're dunking that crust right on in there. I, no, not me either. Okay, so here's the last one. This one's like really recent for me. Um, so uh, how many of you put milk in your eggs when you make scrambled eggs? Raise your hand. That's just weird, guys. <laughs> That's just weird. <laughs> uh, so I asked these questions because a couple of months back, my wife, uh, Mariah, she was uh, making breakfast for us, or dinner, I can't remember, uh, but she's making, she's making the meal for us, and I look over, and she's kind of like battering the eggs, getting ready to make scrambled eggs, and then I see her grab the milk, and she kind of like just starts pouring it in there, and I was like, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm, I'm putting milk in the eggs, and I'm like, no, you don't need to do that. The eggs are fine on their own. And she's kind of looking at me like, no, they need the milk. That's how they're going to be better. They're nice and fluffy. And, and so we got into this disagreement. I don't know if you have those at your house, but we have them over eggs. Uh, and so we start rolling and I go, okay, fine. I'm going to put this to social media because everyone else's opinion really matters. And, and so I go to Facebook, to Twitter, to Instagram. I put a poll out there. Some of you guys might've even answered it, uh, but I asked, do you put milk in your eggs? And after the 24 hour period is up, I lost, uh, and apparently people like milk in their eggs for whatever reason. Now, now as we kind of think through this, uh, my thought with it was that eggs were totally fine on their own, right? Pizza doesn't need pineapple. Pizza doesn't need ranch. It's great by itself. You have a great set of eggs that you could just scramble. You don't need the, the eggs or the milk. But what about with our relationship with God? Do we often start to think, man, do I need something else to make sure that God loves me? I kind of hear this story that it's just by faith alone in Jesus that he'll forgive me of my sin. Can, can that really be true? Because sometimes I think down in the depth of our heart, we start thinking we need to offer something up to God in order for him to actually like love and care for us and, and to respond to us. And we think, no, Lord, I need to do something in order to actually have you forgive my sin. 
And so today, as we read in the book of Acts chapter 15, the church has actually been asking this question for centuries and for years. And so they're going to actually ask the question, what is necessary for salvation? What's necessary? Is it just Jesus alone? Or is it Jesus and something else? So if you would, please open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 1 to 5, and we'll read those together. If you don't have a Bible, we've got a bookcase of them in the back. Feel free to go get one. That's yours to keep. Take it home. Spend some time in the Word. But let's open up to Acts 15, and let's read verses 1 to 5. It says this. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem about this issue. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversation of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, as we've been walking through the book of Acts, we have been studying over the last month, specifically Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey, right? Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen them kind of travel, proclaim the gospel, see people come to faith, and so they come back to their home church in Antioch, and there's some Pharisees that are there that are hanging out with them, but as we've walked through the book of Acts, we've seen that the Pharisees are actually people who are persecuting them and running them out of town. And so this could get a little confusing as to why are there Pharisees hanging out and worshiping with them? That doesn't make sense. Well, these Pharisees specifically are a group of Pharisees who have come to faith in Jesus. They've come to understand that he's the son of God and they've given their lives over to him. But as they're hearing these stories of the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people coming to faith, they're saying, no, they need to be circumcised in order to have salvation. There, there needs to be something else before they can actually have eternal life with Jesus. They need to become Jewish, then they can become Christians. And so it begs the question, what's necessary for salvation for them? Well, Paul and Barnabas clearly disagree with them because it says they have a sharp argument. They continue to have this serious argument and debate, and it gets to the point to where the church is just like, guys, we need to just get together as leaders of the whole church and discuss this thing. We need to figure out exactly what it is and what's necessary for salvation. So Paul, Barnabas, and some other people, they all go down to Jerusalem, and they gather at Jerusalem, and on their way there, they meet some other brothers and sisters, and they're like, hear these stories. People are coming to faith. Gentiles are coming to know who Jesus is. And those people rejoice. And then when they finally get to Jerusalem, they're at the council, they're having this conversation, and the Pharisees come back and they say, hey, hold up. They need to be circumcised in order to have salvation. They need to be circumcised in order to have faith. And so for us, it may sound weird. Why are they talking about circumcision so much? Well, why is that such a big deal to them? Well, if we go all the way back to the book of Genesis, God speaks to Abraham, right? The father of the nations. And he tells him, hey, I'm going to set you apart. You're going to be my people. 
but every male needs to be circumcised, and that way people could tell who you worship. People can see that you're set apart, and you're a follower of the one true God. And so that goes forward until Exodus, in the time of Moses, right? God frees them from slavery from the Egyptians, and then in Exodus chapter 15, God tells Moses, hey, there's going to be Gentiles who are coming with you, people who are not Jewish by heritage, and they're going to want to participate in this family that we have together. But in order to truly participate, they need to be circumcised to really be invested as part of this family. And so the Pharisees are really just going back all the way to the law, and they're saying, hey, we just need to make sure we keep following the law here. We need to keep the law in mind. That's really what they're bringing up here. So the big question of, What's necessary for salvation is the biggest question on the face of this planet today. It is the biggest question that every single person needs to contemplate. And as they think through their own relationship with God and who God is to them, they're going to wrestle with, do I need to do something in order to earn favor with God? Or does he just accept me for who I am and as I am? Is it God plus something else? Or is it him and him alone? And for us, we may read Acts chapter 15 and the conversation of being circumcised, and we just go, well, that doesn't really apply to us today because we don't think about circumcision left and right like they used to, right? So we just pass through it. But no, this, this is important and key. It should key us in to think, well, what are things today for us that we start thinking are the modern-day circumcision? Because I think there are some things where we look at people and, they say, and we say, no, we have to make sure that they have perfect church attendance or else they're not saved. We, we have to make sure that uh, they talk exactly the same way as we do or else they're probably not saved. We, we need to make sure they're a right moral person all the way up to our standard, and if they're not, they probably don't actually have faith in God. And we start putting barriers in front of people, and we start putting weights on them or even on ourselves as we wrestle with that. We start saying it's Jesus plus something else, right? We do this with so many different things. It's Jesus plus being a conservative. It's Jesus plus social justice. It's Jesus plus political action. It's Jesus plus my achievements or Jesus plus my strengths. Jesus plus uh, my reputation. Jesus plus me getting cleaned up and making sure everybody thinks I look nice on Sunday morning. We start adding all these other things and we say, no, it's Jesus and something, and then we become the Pharisees in this situation. So we have to ask ourselves the question, is it Jesus and something, or is it Jesus alone? So let's keep reading to see how they handle it at the Jerusalem council. Verses 6 to 21. Read with me. The apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers and sisters, you are aware that in early days God made a choice among you, that by the mouth, that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' neck that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. 
the whole assembly, assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they stopped speaking, James responded, Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Simeon has reported how God at first intervened to take the Gentiles, a people, for his name. And the words of the prophets agree with this, as it's written. After these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again so the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles, who are called by my name, declares the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God, but instead we should write to them, abstain from the polluted things by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. For since ancient time, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city and every Sabbath day. He is read aloud in the synagogues. So, they gather in Jerusalem and they start to have this debate to talk about do they need to be circumcised in order to be saved or not? Or is it Jesus alone? And as they start talking, Peter, right, one of Jesus' followers who was with Jesus, who walked with him, stands up as one of the leaders in the church and he says, friends, it is by grace alone. And he starts talking about how God has given them the same Holy Spirit that was given to the Jews, and that there's no distinction between the Gentiles and the Jews, that God has cleansed their heart by faith. So that begs the question, what is their faith in? Well, verse 11 tells us that they were saved by the grace of Jesus so that the Gentiles are saved in the same way as the Jews, that it's by Jesus and Jesus alone. They don't need to circumcise the Gentiles, but they're saved by Jesus's grace and faith, and trusting in him. And so today, friends, we can be confident and stand on that very same truth that it's Christ and Christ alone, that the Son of God stepped down from heaven, was murdered, buried for three days, took the crown of thorns, bled down his face, all for our sin, so that we could trust and put our faith in him to give us forgiveness of sin, to allow us to be in a right relationship with him and no longer separated from him, but to be with the one true eternal God for all of eternity. It is by faith and faith alone in who Jesus is, by Christ alone himself, and he graciously lavished this grace and pours it over each and every single one of us who takes it as a free gift that he's just handing out it's not by adding something else, but by him and him alone can we be saved through faith in who Jesus is and what he's done. But you see, the Pharisees here, they're trying to put barriers in the way. They put something in front of the Gentiles and they say, you need to do this before you can be saved. And we do the same thing to people as well. But we have to remind ourselves not to put the same burden, not to put that burden on someone else because Jesus carried our burdens. He can carry their burdens. We, Jesus gave us grace. He can give them grace. We don't have to sit here and tell people, well, you need to make sure you dress the right way before you save. 
You need to make sure you use the right language and you talk just like me. You need to make sure that you have the exact same theology and doctrine as I do. You need to make sure that we vote exactly the same way before you could be saved. No, it's by grace and grace alone. And when we start putting burdens on people, we're putting burdens on their neck that they can't carry. But only Jesus can carry all the weight and he carried the weight for us. Why would he not carry it for somebody else? We can trust that it's by faith in him alone. And, and so as we start thinking of other people and sharing the faith with them and, and hoping that Jesus would save them, let's not put barriers in their way. I don't want to make it hard for someone to come to hear the gospel message, the truth that they're a sinner in need of saving and that Jesus paid the price for them, that he would forgive them of their sin. I don't want to put barriers in people feeling like they can't be a part of our church family because we just want to worship the king. I don't care how you dress. I just want to praise God together and see him save all the more people over and over and over again. So why do we try to put these burdens and barriers on people? Why is it that at the core of our heart, we even try to put these burdens on ourselves? I think there's a couple of different reasons, but maybe one of the main reasons why we do that is that we think, we don't like the fact that we can't save ourselves, right? We don't like that fact at all because we live in a world of this American dream that if you work really, really hard, you'll get exactly what you deserve. And so that has bled into our faith and into our churches and into our own heart to say, man, we need to work really hard in order to deserve salvation, in order that God would accept me because I worked so hard. But the Bible tells us that we actually deserve the exact opposite. The Bible tells us that we're all sinful and that we all deserve death and separation from God for all of eternity, but Jesus came down to change that for us. Jesus took on the death that we rightfully deserved and gave us the grace that we could have, the free gift of salvation with him for all of eternity. Not trying to work ourselves and work our way to heaven, but knowing and trusting that he's the one that did all the work for us. The second reason I think that we try to feed ourselves this false gospel is that we want to play a role in our salvation, right? We want to be able to say, look, God, look what I did for you. Now, please let me into your kingdom. Would you just love me because I did so much for you? And we start taking our overly highlighted Bibles, our church attendance card, and our two-page resume of good works, and we say, Lord, look how much I did for you. Look how good I was. And we want to play a role in our salvation. And yet Jesus says, no, I did it all. He did it all himself. And, and oftentimes we start telling ourselves, we need to do something. And Jesus says, it's done. We say, try harder. Jesus says, it is finished. We say, I owe you something. And he says, it's paid in full. We can trust in that king who gives us grace, who did all the work for us. Jesus and Jesus alone is what leads to salvation. It's by grace that we're saved. Not by trying to be a good person. Not by building up this resume. Not by doing all of these good works, but it's by trusting in the one who actually did it. It's by trusting in the perfect God who became a man so that we could have life with him. Who paid the death that we rightfully deserved. And yet he rose from the grave and defeated sin and death so that we could have everlasting life with him. That's the greatest news that we could ever hear. 
And Jesus did that for us freely. It's not Jesus and. It's Jesus alone. And if you're sitting here this morning in this room, and you're thinking that you still need to do something in order to make God happy with you, you don't. It's simply taking the free gift of faith and trusting that he did the work for you. And if you're sitting here and you're thinking, I've just messed up too much. I've done too many bad things. There's no way that God could forgive me for all the times that I've messed up. I want to encourage you and tell you that Jesus died for your sin too. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says that Jesus' power runs so deep that he's able to redeem the very worst parts of our past into the most radiant parts of our future. But we need to take those dark miseries to him. The deepest and darkest parts of our inner being and who we are, Jesus brings those to light when we take them to him and he forgives it all. Jesus can forgive anything. He's the God of the universe. He's paid the price for all of our sins so that we could give it to him and trust in who he is. Don't believe the lie that he can't forgive your sin. And if you've been walking with Jesus for some time, if you've been uh, a Christian for a couple of years or months or whatever it is, and, and you start telling yourself, well, I don't need the gospel anymore. I can just walk past it. Okay, next, time to step into some really deep theology. Don't believe that either, because then you're going to start believing the lie that you need to do something to earn God's favor, and you're going to start thinking you don't need the gospel, but we need the good news every day of our lives. We need to repeat that to ourselves. We need to feed it to ourselves into the deepest cores of our being, because that's the God who cares for us. That's the God who pursues us. That's the God who wants a relationship with us. And we need to step into that good news each and every single day to just worship the king all the more. So now that we know that it's by faith and faith alone, how does the Jerusalem council solve that at the end of this conversation? So let's keep reading. Verses 22 to 35. Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to select men who were among them to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, both were leading men among the brothers. They wrote, From the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we've heard that some were without authorization went out from among us, and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you along with our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. So they were sent off, and they went down to Antioch. And after gathering the assembly, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Both Judas and Silas, who were also prophets uh, themselves, encouraged the brothers and sisters and strengthened them with a long message. 
After spending some time there, they were sent back in peace by brothers and sisters to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas, along with many others, remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord. I, the, first time, the first couple times I'm reading this section, I'm like, oh, yeah, they just like read a letter and told them, hey, quit strangling stuff. Yeah, let's rejoice. Oh, they're like super excited about it. I was like, that sounds kind of weird, but hey, whatever. Uh, anyway, uh, back to the passage. As we actually think through this stuff, it might be kind of weird, right? We're going, okay, they said it's Jesus alone, but now they're saying, hey, you need to stop sacrificing to idols, no more sexual immorality. Uh, which one is it? Well, if we look at the letter, it says that you will do well if you follow these things. Not that you'll be saved. They're saved by Jesus and Jesus alone. And so as they're encouraging them these things, the Gentiles were making sacrifices to other gods, right? But now they're telling them, you follow the one true God. You don't need to make sacrifices to fake gods anymore. You worship the one true king. And in terms of the sexual immorality, they're saying, hey, God wants something for you. He's not taking something from you. He wants you to continue to pursue a holy, right lifestyle with him. And then with the strangling of blood, uh, that one's a little weirder, but in reality, what they're saying is, hey, your brothers and sisters who are Jewish, they, they, they eat kosher. It might lead to some divisiveness if you bring that into your relationship with each other, and it might lead to some harsh disagreements in the church. So it might just be better if you guys stay away from that and just love your brothers and sisters well. So they say, okay. So they read the letter and they rejoice. They go crazy. They're excited because they've come to see and hear again that they're saved by grace and grace alone in what Jesus has done. And they continue to just celebrate and rejoice with one another that God has saved them by faith through his grace that he continues to run after more people and save more people time and time again. We see Jesus just run after the lost and save more and celebrate and rejoice as a church family. And so today, this morning, we get to do that very same thing, that we get to celebrate and rejoice and go crazy at the fact that Jesus has saved nine more people that we get to witness get into a baptism tank and, and watch them proclaim their faith in Jesus and how he saved them by grace. This is the craziest thing that we could ever witness. We get to praise God for doing a miracle that none of us could do. And we get to worship the one true king that he's redeemed these people and that we aren't placing anything else on them, that Jesus carried the burden for them, that Jesus called them to himself, that he blessed them, that he redeemed them, that he adopted them, that he carries them on. And they're no longer defined by some accomplishments or by mistakes, but they're defined by the love of God, that they're no longer an enemy of God, but they are his child who's been raised up with him for all of eternity. They're no longer a slave to sin, but they are free in Christ Jesus. That is the greatest news that we could ever hear, church, is it not? Amen. Friends, as we think about this gospel, as we hear these testimonies, we should rejoice deep inside our core because God has done something that we cannot do. He has literally brought someone who was dead and made them alive. 
He has taken someone who was far from them and he welcomes them home like a loving father who's missed his child for ages. This is good news that we get to worship the king today. This is good news that we get to watch and witness baptisms of Jesus save and redeem people over and over and over again. Friends, if you're in the room today and you've never heard this gospel truth that you are saved by faith and faith alone in what Jesus has done, that he's redeemed you and made you new, that it's a free gift of everlasting life, would you give your life to Jesus today? Would you commit your life and surrender to him? And if that's true of you, would you celebrate him being baptized with us? Who cares if you're in jeans? Well, take your phone out of your pocket. We'll baptize you. We'd love to just witness God do something beautiful in your life and watch you proclaim Jesus. If you've been saved for 12 years, and 12 years ago you made the proclamation of faith, but you were never baptized and you never celebrated what Christ had done in your life, would you do that with us today? We'd love to just rejoice in what Jesus has done and how he's pursued you and saved you and redeemed you. Because as we think of baptism, baptism isn't something that saves you. Baptism is, is just a, a celebration. It's an outward expression of an inward reality. It's them showcasing to the world, Jesus has redeemed me, and I want to share that with absolutely everyone that I can. And so if that's you today, if you're wondering, or even if you just have questions, should I be baptized? I have no idea. Ricky and Seth and I think Julie are going to be just right in the foyer to talk to you. We'd love to just hear your story and hear about what God's done and pray over you and see, man, should you be baptized this morning? Have you come to faith? We'd love to connect with you in that way. But friends, as these people come up, let's go crazy. Let's get and stand on top of our chairs and hoop and holler and sing as loud as we possibly can and praise God because he's the one who's done the work. We're not doing any of this. I'm not talking golf claps. I'm saying let's get absolutely wild. Luke chapter 15 verse 7 says this. It says that you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous person who need no repentance. Heaven roars when people come to heaven, and this morning we can bring heaven onto earth. We can roar and just declare God's glory for what he's done in these people's lives. Can we not praise the king of kings for redeeming broken, messy people? Baptism is not for people who, who are cleaned up and perfect and have their life put together, but it's for messy people who have been saved and redeemed and washed by the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Uh, let's pray. Father, I thank you that we get to celebrate you this morning, that we get to celebrate the fact that we've been able to be a church plant for an entire year, and you have moved and gone before us and wasted. I can never imagine, Lord. Lord, you have saved people. You've brought people to yourself. You've grown people in deep intimacy with you. You have challenged people. You've challenged me, Jesus. You've provided finances for our church. You've reached the neighborhood. You've moved in other neighborhoods, God, and you continue to do it over and over and over again, Lord. Would we never see you stop saving people? Would we see you continue to pursue others time and time again? And would you use us on that very same mission, Jesus? Would we be faithful to your call to go, to make disciples of all nations, Lord? Would we celebrate and rejoice you? Not in some people, not in some church, not in some home group, Lord, but would we celebrate and rejoice in what you and you alone have done, oh God? We pray this in your beautiful name.
Amen. Well, friends, I'm going to invite three of my friends here, Jay and Ella and Jacelyn, and they're going to read their testimonies out. They're going to share it with all of us, how God has redeemed and saved them, and then we'll witness the nine baptisms together as a church family to just continue to showcase that God is so good. So if you would, please welcome Jay. He's going to read his testimony for us this morning. Hi, uh, my name is Jay Perkins, and I'd like to give you a little story of my life. Um, at the age of 10, my father died in a vehicle accident on December 23rd, 1992, as we were on our way uh, to visit our grandparents for Christmas. That Christmas was hard, to say the least. Growing up, I attended a church who always talked about the so-called God who loved me. And as a boy, the biggest question I had was, if this God truly loved me, why would he let this happen? This question made me angry. Therefore, I did not seek to know God or put any time to know who he is. Then I met the Knoll family. I first met Jen, my wife, in the Lincoln High weight room, and I decided that I wanted to date her. Her father, Eric, told, told Jen that if she wanted to get rid of me, just simply ask him if he wanted to join a Bible study. The problem was I said yes. A few months after the start, it got to that time when I needed to either say yes or no to becoming a follower of Jesus. Having anger still in my heart from my father's passing, I told the No family that I was ready to accept Jesus, and I, I lied. For a couple of years after, I lived two lives, one holier-than-thou life around the No family and my regular self around everyone else. Problem was, Jen saw right through this. Going into my freshman year of college, we took a break from dating. One day during that, the summer, I was walking around campus uh, to get the layout, and I saw a pamphlet from the Navigators who were throwing a back-to-school bash uh, at a local church. I showed up. I remember thinking, if this God was real, he would show himself to me somehow. As I was sitting in the parking lot deciding if this was a really dumb decision or not, I settled on giving it one last try. I walked into the church and looked around to see if I knew anyone, and I didn't. Finally, someone walked over to me and introduced themselves to me and asked if I would sit with them. As we were eating a few snacks, he asked me about my story. As I started talking about my father's passing at the age of 10, he stopped me dead in my tracks, and he said, I now know why my heart was stirred to come over and, and say hi to you. My father passed away at the age of 10 as well. So he invited me to his Bible study. When we proceeded, uh, when, we then proceeded to study the book of John, which was filled with examples of how to be saved. John 1.12, John 3.16, John 5.24, just to name a few, uh, no matter my past. When discussing my salvation with the guys at the study, a couple of verses that were shared from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, which says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, 
who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and me, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. God truly loves me and he loved my dad. This love that Jesus displayed for me by paying a ransom, by dying for my sins, is what I want to be a part of and why I want to be baptized today. My joke is, I've been growing in the faith, not my legs. They stopped a long time ago. They gave up. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jacelyn Walker. I was raised in a Methodist church and was blessed to be a part of a family that attended church regularly and participated in things like Sunday school and youth group. During a particular lesson on the rapture, I was struck by the fact that there would be a division between those who were saved and the unsaved, and that the saved were not distinguished by the family they were born into or how many church activities they attended. The only way to be among the saved is to accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. So that's what I prayed and did. Still for years, I put a lot of pressure on myself to behave like the perfect Christian in order to be an example to others and also out of fear of losing points with God. It was during my college years I finally realized my salvation was never something I could earn or be in jeopardy of losing. Jesus knows all the sin I have or will ever commit and laid down his life that I may live free of that burden. In response to that great gift, I choose to be baptized today as an outward expression of my faith in submission to the Lord's will in my life and with joy that I will spend eternity with him. No, no, that's good. That's Thank you. Uh, hi, I'm Ella Perkins, and I'm going to be giving you my brief testimony, and I'm going to try really hard not to ugly cry. So, um, so I grew up in a Christian home and in the church, so I've constantly been surrounded by the gospel. I went to Sunday school, and as I started getting older, I would go to the regular services with my parents. Around seven or eight, I surrendered my heart to Jesus. I remember sitting down and having a talk with my mom about salvation and what it is and what it means. We talked about how Jesus loves me so much and that if I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and I believe that he died on the cross to save me from my sins, that I would be saved and go to heaven. Sadly, over time, Christianity for me also became going to church being an all-around great person and having your life put together. I didn't understand that it was more about having a personal relationship with my Lord and Savior. About a year and a half ago, my Nana approached me about doing a Bible study with her, and I agreed, mostly because it was at her house and I would get tons of free snacks. And I also wanted her approval and for her to be proud of me, so basically for all of the wrong reasons to do a Bible study. One of the things I remember that my Nana would say to me every time we would meet is, Ella, just make sure that this is your faith. It's your faith, not your parents' faith. 
And you know, I would nod my head in agreement, and I would reassure her that it most definitely was my faith. But at that same time, her saying this stirred something up in me, and I started to question my faith. So I went onto the Bible app and started reading in Galatians when I happened upon this verse, Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And that's when I realized that my so-called faith might in fact be my parents' faith. Sure, I knew that there was a God. I knew that I loved him, and I knew that he loved me. But as I matured, so had my understanding of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. It's not about perfectionism, but about a relationship. So right there in my bedroom, I decided to recommit my life to Jesus and to have a relationship with him. And from then on, my life and even my perspective started to change. I started looking forward to going to church to worship and to learn about God. And I even started to go to youth group. I also noticed that I was starting to become more confident in myself and in my identity. Sorry. <laughs> I've learned that my identity is not in my grades or my appearance. Being perfect, my friends or how popular I am, it's in Jesus. <laughs> The reason that I want to get baptized is because I want to showcase the fact that I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came down to the earth in the form of a man to save me, a dirty, sinful nobody, from my sins, and to have a rich, personal relationship with me, his daughter. Romans... <laughs> I'm not done yet. <laughs> I have a verse. Um, <laughs> Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 